Well, hello, everyone. This is Jessica. And this is Caitlin. And this is the Calling All Spirits podcast. How are you, Caitlin? I am pretty good. Uh, I've got some family chaos going on, but honestly, the more entertaining thing is that I've reorganized a big part of my room because it turns out my death cabinet needed to be my general book cabinet because I have to put (laughs) my my teapot in my room now with all the roommates. But what was funny was I was looking all over the place for this stupid book so that I could use it for the notes for the recording. Right. I put it where it belonged and I couldn't find it because I'm not used to putting things away. (laughs) That is so funny. And I can so sympathize with that. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. I glanced into the shelf and I'm like, no, it wouldn't be there because I was working on it the other day and I didn't put it away. No, I did. I put it away. And so I couldn't find it. Oh, you're probably like me. Do you just have like piles of stuff? But they're organized piles. Like I know where everything is in those piles. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That is the book of a stack of books for work. This is the stack of books for the podcast. That Mm -hmm. is the stack of paperwork that really should be filed and put away, but hasn't been. Yeah. And uh, currently there is a uh, Wednesday Adams coloring book next to my uh, (gasps) desk. So now that is exciting. I love that. Yes, it's been very cathartic because I've been going hard into uh, the escapism of audiobooks. Some of them have been podcasting on topic and researchy, but uh, some of them have been fantasy and just get my brain off of things. And uh, not going to lie, going old school and coloring while listening to somebody read me a story has been spectacular. Oh, I love that. I should really try that because I can't just sit still or just sit and listen. I have to be doing something. So I didn't, but I didn't think about a coloring book. Yeah. Joey got it for me five months ago. Yeah. And it might've been longer, but when I was rearranging the room, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like fun. And I want to sit down now and ignore the world. And so I was coloring and it was quite delightful, but yeah, I can't, I can't sit still and listen to an audiobook either. I have to cross stitch or clean or uh-huh play games on my phone or something say i was playing games on my phone and then they were mindless so then i switched to sudoku because i'm like well at least i'm using my brain at least it's a challenge like you know so i'm like i feel like this is a better way <laughs> to do it makes sense i mean i don't know if it's better when it's the whole thing is to kind of low-key do a mental reset there is no better there's just a matter of what works that's for true you. But that's if you enjoy Sudoku, then I think that counts. It felt better than like the stupid like fishdom game or whatever that I love. Don't get me wrong. But I'm like, this that's kind of brainless. This At least I feel like I'm getting semi smarter doing this or working my brain. <laughs> like, I have played so many hours of Homescapes this week. I have no judgment for fishdom <laughs> at all. And I mean, don't get me wrong. That game was addicting. I loved it. But I, I finally I'm like, I have to delete this off my phone. Like this is. At least do a crossword, Jessica. Do something else. That's like, valid. I have, if I have to think about what I'm doing too hard. I can't remember the audiobook and I get distracted and I have to rewind. So, yes. I think yeah, cross stitching is probably the most productive I can be when I'm listening to an audiobook because yeah. then I have my craft when I'm done, but I haven't yeah. wanted to. So, col- coloring it is. No, that that's totally fine. It's like I can't sit and watch TV either. Yeah. I have to be doing like five other things. So, no, I, I feel you. My brain works the same way. I totally understand you. It's almost like we get along for a reason or something. I know. I know. Oh, well, I love you've been coloring and that's, that's great about organizing and yeah. all that. What have you been up to this week? Well, I have been... <laughs> very cool actually decorating a large home that was built in 1883 um which you know what it is but it's this beautiful 
home that's part of a museum and every year we get to decorate it for Halloween and the theme changes every year and we go all out <laughs> which I mean we, we take it to extremes I mean we get a little crazy and um, inside there and this year's themes are gothic tales we were revisiting an old theme that we did like in 2016 so like a long oh, time wow, ago yeah yeah and so we have like Dracula and Frankenstein and Edgar Allan Poe and Caitlin, we have a doll room. No, why? We do. And the creepiest music playing in it. Naturally. Well, because it was the turn of the screw, which that was the book. And um, listeners, if you're not familiar with that, if you watch Netflix's The, ha- the Haunting of Blythe Manor, I believe that's what it was called. It was kind of based loosely on that book. Mm. And so it's about two kids that are possessed and it's two kids in the Victorian period, and they would have had dolls. So we have, like, I don't even know how many China dolls we have in that room. We have a lot. Suddenly, I'm glad that I can't help at the house this year. <laughs> <laughs> As I was working on that room, I was like, Caitlin would hate this mm-hmm. room so much. And so, yeah. So, I mean, it's it's been super fun feel super lucky that even though I don't work there anymore, I still get called in to help with Halloween. And we did our first ghost tours. So we did that this weekend. So we kicked off the ghost tours and I still get to do ghost tours this year, which is so exciting. And I love it. And it's been really, the houses and the the museum building have been pretty active, actually. Oh, yeah? Like, it's kind of like it's waking up. Yeah, especially the museum building. Yay! I know, I know. Lots of good ghost stories and things. But I was still so proud because I still tell the classic ones. We still talk about the ones that I'm involved in. I'm like, yay! (laughs) Good, I'm glad. Yeah, but but I was a little disappointed as we were decorating. The house was super quiet. I like kept waiting for something. It felt happy. Like it felt very content and happy. Like it felt good. But but nothing. Yeah. Get, and I even went up in that attic a couple of times. I, I know. I know. Going up in an attic of a house built in 1983 is a little creepy, especially the lights burned out. So you have to use a flashlight. <laughs> and I had to go up there and get stuff. And I'm like, I'm not going to lie. Little creepy. Little spooky. Valid. Valid. Yeah. But no, it was really quiet. But the house feels really I mean, like good. The house likes it when it's de- being decorated for the holidays anyway. So that's kind of it not surprising. Does. Yeah, yeah. So anyway, so that's what I've been doing. And so I it's been a good October so far. Yes, and we got a nice little break from the heat. I'm so happy. Oh my goodness. It was what what did it get to like 53 50 at least here it got to be like 53 54. Yeah, it got down to I think 55 for us and oh, oh it was amazing. I drank my coffee on the front porch and I sat outside mm-hmm. with the dogs and I haven't done that since like March. It's amazing. Oh, it was incredible. Like I actually had to wear a long sleeve sweater and I'm <gasps> like what is this? Like Gasp. what is happening right now? <laughs> I know and now we're back up to like the 80s. But that's okay. I will take the 80s. Oh, yeah, no, 80s, 80s is just, 80s means I have to close the windows again. It doesn't yes. mean that I start complaining about life. No. I can I can, I can, can work with 80s for sure. Absolutely. So, yeah, so it's finally, I think Texas is finally starting to feel like fall. Well, we have our first, our first false fall before we have another summer splurge, and then we'll get the proper fall in, like, November. <laughs> well, this is true, but it's like, it, at least I feel like it gave us some hope. Like, yes, like, this can happen here. <laughs> you don't always have to 
to live on the surface of the sun. Exactly. <laughs> and it came with rain, which we have desperately needed. Yes, we did. We desperately needed that. And hopefully so, yeah, it'll rain been... some more tomorrow. So, yay. Fingers I crossed. I know. I know. I know. Me too. Me too. But I, but yeah, so it's good. And I love we're kind of continuing into October. Yeah. And I am really excited about your topic tonight because I know we just left off with Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Mm-hmm. And we kind of left a cliffhanger with that podcast. A little bit. A little because bit. Because uh-huh. we have a bit of a crossover going on and we didn't want to give y'all too much about today's topic while covering Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Because yeah. I don't know. I mean, I imagine most people are at least passingly aware of the relationship that he had with Harry Houdini. You would think. But I'm excited to learn more about Houdini's early life because I feel like I don't know much about that and then kind of eventually what happened with yeah. him and Doyle. I mean, details are always good and getting caught up in the weird <laughs> things that we didn't know about is absolutely the name of the game. Absolutely. So are you ready to get started? Yeah, I think we should go ahead and jump in. So out the jump, some of the sources that I utilized was a book by Bernard C. Meyer, Houdini, A Mind in Chains. It was fascinating because it's a psychoanalytic portrait of the person Mm. it was written in the 70s so there are some problems with how they view mental health but there were some things that were you know pretty valid that he was like yeah no that's pretty obvious (laughs) but a more up-to-date source was the wild about harry website it had so many articles on the topic oh my god oh that's awesome and then i also had a book from the library that that was one of the audiobooks that i was listening to that was relevant to my life (laughs) and its title is uh the life and afterlife of harry houdini oh very cool and that one was really cool because that one gave really great perspective on how houdini is still impacting the world today like with with the different people talking about him and like Wild About Harry, the website was mentioned in the book and mentioned by uh, somebody else that I was talking to about the topic. And so it was just, wow, okay, this is the go-to website for him. So if you're curious about Houdini, I can definitely recommend that website. Oh, cool. Awesome. Yeah. And like you said, we don't know much about his early life. So to jump mm-hmm. straight back to the beginning, the man yes. that we know today as Harry Houdini was actually born Eric Weiss in Budapest, Hungary. He claimed that his birthplace was Wisconsin because he wanted to be, you know, born in the USA, but he didn't arrive in Wisconsin until he was four. Oh, okay. Gotcha. (laughs) Uh, His mother, Cecilia, and his four brothers joined his father, who had been a rabbi of a small reform congregation there. And although he was educated, Herman Mayer Weiss was not destined for success, apparently, in the U.S. Mm. He had kind of a lifelong struggle to provide for his family, and that's one of the theories, is that that made a really strong impression on Eric. Yeah, that would make sense. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, for the 1880s, he was, you know, kind of forced to go to work at an early age to help the family make ends meet. But he was drawn to performing from the jump. He made his debut in a neighborhood circus as a nine-year-old trapeze artist, Eric, Prince of the Air. Oh, I love that. That's adorable. Isn't that fantastic? It really is. Then in 1887, after a series of failed appointments to different rabbi positions in the Midwest, his father brought Eric with him to New York, where they lived in a boarding house and found what work they could do. And when he wasn't working, Eric excelled in sports, particularly swimming, boxing, and running, developing the natural athletic gifts that would be, you know, useful Later on, (laughs) given his career. Right. So where did the name Houdini come from? 
Well, when Houdini was a child, he found a book that introduced him to a French magician, John or Jean Eugene Robert Houdin. I suck at French. I'm so sorry, y'all. <laughs> he was a French watchmaker and a magician and illusionist, and he's widely recognized as the father of the modern style of magicianship. Oh, I didn't know. I've never heard of him. Yeah, he changed it from a pastime for the lower class people to something that was more entertainment for the wealthy. Oh. Yeah, he offered it in a, he performed in a theater that opened in Paris, and his legacy is still preserved today by the fact that modern magicians perform in top hats and tails. So he's the one that started that. Yep, that was him. Okay, that is fascinating. I guess I never thought about where it started, but that's so cool to learn it was him. Yeah, neither did I. Like, it never occurred to me to even think of it. And then somebody pointed, or the audiobook I listened to pointed that out. And I had to push pause because I'm just like, oh, my obvious. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Okay, that's a cool trivia fact to know and houdini obviously admired him enough to pull his name Uh, he actually formed initially a magician's Mm -hmm. act with his friend jacob hyman and they called themselves the brothers houdini oh Uh, the brothers houdini performed their act in what's uh, called an unremarkable collection of card and other magic tricks in dime museums and small theaters throughout upstate new york But what's cool is they performed in 1893 in Chicago at an exposition that we're all familiar with, the Columbia World's Fair. Okay, that is very cool. I am so fascinated with that exposition. Oh my gosh, after reading Devil in the White City, I've just kind of became obsessed with it. Yes, between just the ridiculous amounts of scientific discovery and the fact that that's when they developed spray paint and that's where we start seeing evidence of the Kodak camera and then you add a ridiculously terrifying serial killer with a literal murder maze castle and I'm I'm going to be fascinated with that forever. Yes. Oh, that's so cool that they were there. I love it. Yep. They were street performers. <laughs> so when his friend Jacob left to join the army, Houdini's brother Dash joined to become the other Houdini brother. Mm. But that didn't really last very long because he left, he left, he met his wife, Bess, pretty quickly after that. And the brothers Houdini became the Houdinis. Oh, okay. Yeah. uh, Houdini actually met her in 1894 where she was performing as one of the floral sisters at the Sea Beach Palace in West Brighton Beach, New York. And apparently they were married about three or four weeks after they met. Wow. That was a quick romance. Right? There is, um, there's apparently a myth that likes to be not doesn't like to be busted there's a myth that's very prevalent about how they met that a Uh lot of houdini historians will go to the mat if you even bring it up about the fact that it's not true Uh, there was something about houdini was performing a trick and he spilled something on her dress and had his mom replace it and so like they were connected after that but that was a very theatrical inventive meet cute that was invented by both of them and shared by Bess a lot after he died that has no basis in historical record. I would just say it was love at first sight. I mean (laughs) Seems simpler. Exactly. I don't see the problem (laughs) with the fact that they were both performers. They met. They liked each other. They made it legal and then took off for adventuring for the rest of their lives together. I don't see the problem with that. I don't either but I don't know if they were both performers they may have wanted it 
a little more dramatic. Yeah, they want a jazzier story. Mm-hmm. While traveling, the couple got a bit of attention with a trunk escape that they called the metamorphosis. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, realistically, the early days of his career were pretty rough. Uh, traveling circuses, more dime store museums, and impersonating mediums in his fraudulent seances. Oh. Because his later issue with mediums was brought about... Initially, by the fact that he faked it, so why wouldn't they? Now, did people know, like, he was faking it, or was he pretending to be a real medium? He was pretending to be a real medium because he was trying to make ends meet, and he turned a fraud. Wow. Like, and then, hmm, I don't know how I feel about that, because then you're going to call out other people that may be doing the same. Not that I'm a fan of fraudulent mediums, but maybe they're doing the same thing. Maybe they're trying to survive. Like, I don't know. There's something about that that bothers me. It's it, it very much gives um, a person who has cheated on their significant other is more likely to see all behavior as leading to like, wow. they're hiding that they're cheating. <clears throat> mm-hmm. Like, you know, I cheated on you, but you're the one who's being dishonest with me. Like, you're projecting so hard we can't function. Yeah. That's what this is giving. Yeah. A yeah. Bit. I, yeah. yeah. Uh, no, I agree. I agree. I mean, the good news is that when he was only 25 uh, in 1898, he was so tired of all of this that he thought seriously of quitting. Mm. He even sent out a catalog for Harry Houdini's School of Magic. Wow. Oh, my gosh. Going to give up his secrets. He was. They have a whole pricing breakdown. He promised to teach all aspects of spiritualism. So how to fake slate writing and sleight of hand. Okay. And he had a pamphlet that was called Magic Made Easy. Okay. For 50 cents, he will teach you to make a word appear on your arm as though written in blood. Oh. For $1, he will teach you how to hypnotize animals. What? Yeah. For $5, he will teach you the needle trick, which, horrifying to me, is a matter of you take a small handful of needles and a long length of thread and you put them in your mouth and you somehow thread the needles while the needles and thread are in your mouth. And I don't know if you've all had an animal eat a needle and have to go in for emergency surgery, but that sounds like a bad idea to me. I would say, that sounds terrifying. Yeah. That could go wrong so quickly. Yeah. So quickly. Apparently, it was a trick that he learned while traveling with one of the circuses, but like, why? Why? Yeah. Don't, don't, don't let people think they can do that. Don't encourage that. Exactly. Oh, Lord. And then horrifying for his own career, he was off, even offering to uh, teach people the metamorphosis trick that he and Bess had developed while traveling. Oh, wow. He really is like giving, like, here's everything. Exactly. But, I mean, the, the good news, bad news is that the school closed before it even opened. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> like, he had been staying with his mom for a while in New York and he had gotten a job at the lock factory. Which is really cool given that uh, his idol was a watchmaker. Like, watches and clocks have very similar gears and tumblers and stuff. So I thought that was kind of cool. But he had to go back on the road one more time to fulfill some contracts. Mm -hmm. And so while he was out doing that, he kind of up and issued a $50 challenge to anyone who can keep him in handcuffs. Oh, wow. Okay. Which may sound familiar based on what we know about him being an escape artist for, like, the rest of all time. Yes. So this is where it begins. This is where it begins. Uh, it was when, let's see, it was 1899, and it basically came about because he was traveling with a vaudeville theater troupe, and there was a gentleman by the name of Martin Beck, a rising tycoon mm-hmm. 
in the new world of vaudeville theater because this <laughs> is the 1890s and vaudeville is new. Right. And the dude ignored the entire act except for the handcuffs. <gasps> really? He really liked Houdini's handcuff escapes and challenged him with his own cuffs. Very cool. A few days later, Beck was with the Orpheum circuit that dominated the vaudeville programs in the West, on the West Coast. He cabled uh-huh. Houdini, who was in Minnesota. Um, he cabled him from Chicago. So it, 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 these people are traveling all over the place. I'm very sorry right. for the confusion. Um, but basically, while assuming that he's going to be revealing all of his secrets in a magic school, in a last-ditch effort to at least incorporate some part of his passion in his life, he gets a yeah. call saying, you can open in Omaha March 26th for $60 or $2,412 in today's money. Wow. He went from penniless to, here, you want to do a show for 2000 bucks? That's incredible. And if this goes well, you'll probably see a proposition for the rest of the season. Oh my gosh. Like, he hit the jackpot. Yeah, he really did. Because by the end of the year, he had the Houdinis playing and leading vaudeville houses from the Midwest to California. Wow. And by 1900, they were also a hit on the East Coast. Uh, What I think was hilarious is that I absolutely understood and I I remembered all of the handcuffs and the straitjacket escapes that Houdini did. But I underestimated how many public stunts and how many jail escapes he did to lure people to the theaters okay that's brilliant yeah that's brilliant marketing he was a marketing genius like that was another one i got from the audiobook was they broke it down in detail he would issue a challenge on like monday or tuesday in the newspaper anyone Uh who can bring handcuffs that i can't escape like i'll give you 50 bucks okay they'll Somebody will respond to the challenge on, like, Tuesday. So if he, he issues mm-hmm. the challenge Monday, somebody responds Tuesday. They do it Wednesday. So there's, like, a micro show in the middle of the week. Right. There's a rematch announced because the challenger didn't like how it played out. So on Thursday, they'll be back in the newspaper again. Oh my and then God. Friday and possibly Saturday, they'll redo the whole thing, but with bigger crowds because it's the weekend. Okay, that's genius. I'm thinking, what if he had had, like, TikTok back then? Mm. Or social media? Like, what would he have done? Like, oh this my is God, genius. Yeah. With social media? I can't even imagine what he would be right now. No, but that's so smart on how to get your name in the newspapers. Exactly. Wow. It, he he knew how to work the publicity and then he would add to that you know the dangling from a tower in a straight jacket or escaping a famous prison it 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 was insane but genius that is so cool and by 18, by the end of 1899 he was escaping from handcuffs leg iron straight jackets and anything else that he could lock or strap himself into wow and he was wow. being engaged by the Orpheum Theater in San Francisco for $175 a week or okay, $6,396 a week. Wow. So to go from penniless to that. like, yeah. and, and quickly, too. Exactly. Like, he went from 1898, I'm giving up on this, right. to 1900, he's making 6 k a week. Wow. Never give up on your dreams. You never know yeah. when your break's going to come. You give it an extra couple of months and you could be off to Europe to travel the European circuit as the king of handcuffs. Wow. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Like, we don't hear enough about his early career and I'm just baffled no. by it because it happened just like that. Yeah. Yeah. No. 
So fascinating. Absolutely nuts. So while he was touring Europe, he, of course, hit France because, like, it's going to happen. But this is where we kind of get the first real impact of his kind of hot temper that pops out of nowhere. And he'll do, like, a 180 on how he feels about you. Okay. Um, So remember the person that he named himself after, his absolute hero of magicians, is from France. Now, keep in mind that um, Houdin had died years before this like before Houdin even discovered him the guy's been dead for a while I can't remember what Mm -hmm. year he died if I remember it I will tell you (laughs) he wanted to pay homage to his idol when he was in France in 1901 and he had a visit to the theater that was in Paris that the the big magic show had been initially launched in and apparently this turned out to be the beginning of a parade of misadventures and disillusionments uh oh Largely because the theater had been turned into a motion picture house and that made him sad. Oh. I mean, from theater to motion picture. Yeah. Yeah. And then he also tried to, you know, make contact with other people who were connected to his hero. He learned that the widow of his hero's son. So we have uh, Houdin, his son Mm -hmm. Emile, who had died. His son's widow was in the area. Uh-huh. And he sent her a letter requesting her permission to place a wreath on the tomb of her illustrious father-in-law. Yeah. And asked her if he could also, you know, if she would grant him an interview. And aside from learning that the lady had been ill for some time and didn't wish to be disturbed, he received no reply. Mm-hmm. Which, I mean, she she's sick. I don't really blame her there. Yeah, no. And so he's like, all right, fine, I'll just do it anyway. And so he took a train to where the gravesite was. And he discovered that the great Frenchman's daughter, Rosalie, a sculptress, was living with her husband there. And Uh she also said no when Houdini asked for an interview. She claimed she was working and didn't wish to be interrupted, which, as an artist, kind of makes sense. Yeah, I can see that. But he found out that no one was going to object to his visiting the grave. And so he ordered a wreath, which bore the words honor and respect to Robert Houdin from the magicians of America and proceeded to the cemetery. Uh huh. And he brought along with him a photographer who took his picture while he placed the wreath on the monument and stood bareheaded in front of it for nearly 30 minutes. Um, I'm, I'm, The photographer part kind of gets me a little bit. Yeah, that's mine too. I'm like, I get, I get doing it. Like, absolutely, go for it. You have your hero. You visit their gravesite. Right. You get a wreath. You have the money for it. Absolutely, go for it. You bring a photographer. Well, and I think it's different. Like, was it because he wanted to have the moment captured for himself? Because I know people. I mean, I've done it. You go to graves of fav- famous people. You take your picture. I mean. Or was it for publicity? Like, I guess I, yeah, that's, that's what fair. I would be curious about. That would be a good question. And I don't have, yeah. I didn't come across anyone talking about how he used it anywhere. Right. So it's possible that, like you said, it was it was for his own memory, which is yeah. valid. Right. Especially if this is kind of like what inspired him to. You know what? Some- Given how hard we're going to be on him for the rest of this episode, I will give him that. I will. Okay. I will assume <laughs> That it was because he wanted a memento for himself of his time at the graveside of his hero. Okay. Sounds good. (laughs) The rest of this does not go well. So (laughs) (laughs) 
the rebuffs from his hero's family uh, apparently resulted in an angry outburst that was mostly English but garnished with Yiddish. The nerve of those stuck-up fakers, he supposedly screamed, I'll fix them, I'll do them something, they won't forget Houdini, they want to play dirty, so I'll play dirty. Wow. When it was suggested that Madame Robert Houdin lived in a secluded life and was entitled to respect, he supposedly shouted, he stole other man's inventions, the great Robert Houdin, he was nothing more than a common thief, that old crook never invented nothing, and I can prove it. I'll write a book exposing the old fraud. The old bastard, his book is full of lies. Well, that took a turn. Yeah, that was a little bit of a 180, just saying. Okay, so you're going to this man's grave, standing there for 30 minutes because you respect him so much. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to write a book on how he was a complete fraud. Wow. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. He, uh... Was not was not great about the uh, the rebuffment, basically, and like what kills me is that the author uh, Meyer for the Houdini Bind and Chains goes into detail about how many places Houdini stole tricks from. I mean, again, it's like calling out other people for what you're doing. His entire life is pot kettle black. Yes, that's what kept going through my head. Like, okay, we're being a little hypocritical here. Just a little bit. But, like, he, yeah, no, he was, he was not a stable human being. Yeah, I I just can't get over that. Like, as much as you apparently respected and adored this person, and now you get mad, so you're just going to burn it all to the ground. Yeah. Wow. And ignore the fact that things like making key matches in wax before a show was actually like literally printed in another magician's encyclopedia, but you're going to claim it as an original trick for yourself. Yeah. It's not a good, yeah, not a good look. It is not a good look, but I mean, he's the famous one and we still talk about him today. So I mean, (laughs) but back to the absolute ridiculousness of his career um some of the best stories i found were on the different cuff escapes so one of the situations was after france in march of 1904 in the packed hippodrome theater in london's west end he had issued his you know typical invitation for challenges to bring him handcuffs that he could not escape from Right. Dozens, dozens of people came each time. Like, they each handled him a set of shackles, and he, of course, came out of them. Mm-hmm. And then came a reporter from the mirror. Okay. He presented Houdini with a pair of steel cuffs, and apparently Houdini was stumped by the challenge. Wow. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, supposedly an unpickable lock, and... Houdini took one look at the lock and refused three times to take up the challenge, but he was eventually persuaded um, for to do it for a matinee show five days later where he would, you know, pit his wits against the best of British craftsmanship. Oh, my goodness. The mirror handcuffs, which is what they became known as because of the reporter from the mirror, uh-huh. uh, they were made by a Birmingham blacksmith with a okay. lock that he spent five years perfecting and <gasps> believed that no mortal man could pick. Holy moly. Wow. A string of London's leading locksmiths had inspected the solid steel shackles and all collectively collectively agreed. Oh my goodness. <laughs> they called wow. it a, a magnificent yet fiendish mechanism. 
Oh, that's the best description ever. I that love is it great. So much. Um, love it. And at first, Houdini tried to like, you know, duck out of the challenge, claiming that he only attempted to escape from regulation police cuffs. Oh. But that's not actually what was said in the newspaper. So he relented and on March seventeenth, he took to the stage at the Hippodrome, as we said. Yes. In front of four thousand fans. Okay. And he's he even opened with, I don't know whether I'm going to get out of them or not, but I can assure you I'm going to try my best. Okay. So he disappeared into his stage cabinet, which he called his ghost house. And wow. yeah, he didn't do this in front of people. He went off stage basically to work on this. Okay. And after 22 minutes, he poked his face out, but only to get a better look at the lock and the strong electronic light. Oh, my goodness. So he's struggling. He's struggling. And at 35 minutes, he emerged again. His collar was broken. Like, remember, because he had really stiff collars. Right. And sweat was pouring down his face, complaining that his knees hurt. Oh, my goodness. Uh, And he insisted he wasn't done. So the reporter from the mirror, like, you know, I'm going to give him some credit for this. And he gave him a cushion to kneel on while he was working on this. Okay. After another 35 minutes, so we're at the 50-minute mark. Wow. He emerged again, and the shackles were still on. Oh, my goodness. Houdini and the audience asked, has just been sitting there the whole just time. Just sitting there for 50 minutes, like just talking wow. to each other. Um, Houdini asked the reporter to remove the cuffs so he could take off his coat, and the reporter refused. <gasps> because he insisted that if he took... If he undid the lock, then Houdini would get a look at the mechanism and know how to come out of it. That makes sense. That so, makes sense. yeah. I mean, I can understand why he said no. Right. Um, right. And so, naturally, Houdini took a penknife from his pocket, flipped his coat over his head, and cut it to ribbons. Oh, I mean, <laughs> to that's get kind it of a trick. It's a trick in itself. I mean, I'll give it him is. that. And apparently, the way the reporter described it, it broke the tension and was a bit of comic relief. It was uh, wow. top showmanship. There you go. So, still determined, Houdini went back into the ghost house, and ten minutes later, he is merged triumphant with the handcuffs <gasps> taken off. An wow. hour and ten minutes of him basically in a box on stage where they could see nothing and the audience was just there. Oh my god. Like... Did he make it bored? Like, because that sounds kind of boring. You would think so. Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sound super exciting. No, it doesn't. Like, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't understand. But it was apparently like a nail-biting event for everybody. And okay. the band struck up a crescendo. And there was a huge moment when he came out. Wow. And yeah, No. Oh, my goodness. Well, I mean, it's impressive he was able to get out. I'll give him that. That's yeah, really no, for impressive. sure. Like, given that these were, like, custom made to be unescapable, like, they, yeah. that part, absolutely. It's the idea of being an audience member sitting there watching the show being like, I don't know why I'm still here. Yeah, that'd be a lot more entertaining now when we have our phones. <laughs> like, yeah, just exactly. Like, I've just been on TikTok the whole time. Yeah. Oh, he's coming out. <laughs> And he's still locked up. Next. Yeah, exactly. Keep scrolling. (laughs) (laughs) But I mean, I guess this was before TV or any of that. So maybe this was fast. Maybe this was super thrilling the whole time. I guess so. Maybe. I don't know. (laughs) 
another thing that is not related to handcuffs, because I'm doing this more or less chronologically, y'all. That's why it seems like I'm jumping around a lot. It's because, like, he did a lot of random stuff in between his shows. <laughs> like, for example, in 1910, he became known in Australia not for magic and not for escaping, uh huh, but for flying an airplane. What? <laughs> okay, what, what's the story? All right, so his interest in aviation began in 1909 okay. when he was in France. And Wilbur Wright had come to France to set up shop. So, like, you know, we'd already had the first in flight in the U.S. Right. And the subsequent flights created a sensation. But toward the beginning of... N- not the beginning. Toward the beginning of November. So the, towards the end of 1909, while playing in Hamburg... Houdini went to the racetrack and saw his first flight. He was completely like a little kid, super excited. (laughs) And when the plane landed, Houdini rushed up to the pilot and just peppered him with questions, including how can he learn how to fly and how does he get a plane for himself? Oh, okay. Uh, Within a week, that second problem was solved and he bought a plane in France and rented a wooden house to store it in. And from this point forward, the plane was his obsession. Virtually all other subjects disappeared from his diary, apparently. That's crazy. Yep. And although he had the word Houdini painted in large letters on the side of the plane and had his picture taken in standing beside it, mm-hmm. it would be weeks before he actually flew. <laughs> wow. But, but I mean, I mean, that's crazy. But the fact that he was so, but he was flying after a couple of weeks. Yes. Like he went from, oh my God, I want a plane to, I have a plane and then I can fly in a couple of weeks. And the only thing that kept him on the ground wasn't him learning how to fly. It was really strong winds that were not safe to fly in. I mean, that's pretty impressive. To yeah. Me. I mean, wow. it's a different plane than we have people getting licenses for, right, but true. this is also completely unregulated and unlicensed. And uh, think about motor cars in 1910, and you have a similar yeah. idea to what you actually have to qualify for. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Um, and I mean, in in a in what you would expect for a guy who just got a plane and hasn't had any lessons, uh-huh. uh, he he promptly crashed. Oh. <laughs> Of course. But the good news is he'd hardly left the ground when he crashed. So, okay, good. Like, he, he smashed the machine and, quote, broke the propeller all to hell. <gasps> but he, he was uninjured. And good. a couple weeks later, after the plane had been repaired, he tried again and made his first successful flight. Oh, awesome. Um, what's funny is this guy who barely knows how to fly himself. Yeah. This, this second flight was you done at the parade grounds outside of Hamburg. Uh-huh. And permission to use this location had been granted to him on one condition. Okay. That he teach the local regiment the art of flying. Wait, wait, what? So he's, he's teaching people how to fly after he has just learned how to fly? Uh-huh. Wow, they had a lot of faith in it. I mean, we still have celebrities teaching stuff that they really shouldn't be teaching today. So I think it was that it's the fact that the local municipality was involved in this and they granted him permission to use parade grounds on the condition that he teach their people the thing he learned yesterday. 
it doesn't seem like the wisest solution, but that's okay. We're going to go with that. I mean, it was definitely another source of publicity. And he had a whole bunch of pictures of himself taken, seated in the plane, surrounded by German army officers. Wow. <laughs> Craziness. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, through the rest of his engagement in Germany, he spent all of his spare time with the, the plane. Um, mm-hmm. And when he left Marseille uh, in January of 1910 for Melbourne, Australia, he created the aircraft and brought it along with him. Oh. He also brought his flying instructor. <laughs> Smart. <laughs> Keep working on it. I mean, that's Don't... a solid move right there. I really I... cannot blame him on that one. I, I agree. Yeah. Um, what's trippy is that when Houdini arrived in Melbourne with his plane, no one had yet made a successful flight in Australia. Oh. So Houdini wow. had the chance to be the first person to fly down in Australia. Okay, that's pretty incredible. Right? That's very cool. Every night after his show, he'd le- he he left Melbourne to spend the night some 20 miles away. Um, and we don't know whether or not Bess went with him or not. But mm-hmm. Uh, once again, he had to deal with bad weather. Oh. And there was another guy who was trying to become first in flight who was local. He had acquired mm-hmm. one of the Wright brothers' planes. Oh, okay. So people were basically creating a betting pool between Houdini and this local guy. Oh. Um, and while this tension is building between the two rivals, Houdini's still giving nightly performances. Um, he even had a performance from the Queen's Bridge where he was manacled and he jumped off the bridge, landed in the muddy waters, and broke free of his shackles. But right after he jumped in the muddy waters, a corpse floated to the surface. Oh, <gasps> no. And people thought that he died. Oh, oh my God. He came to the surface a few seconds later and it was fine. But yeah, no, talk about bad timing. Oh my God. So that's very much a good news. Houdini lived. Bad news. There was a corpse. Somebody yes. asked. There's a dead guy <laughs> in the river. We should probably figure out who this is. Yeah. Oh my God. Um, and I mean, it was horrifying for him because apparently when he came up out of the water and he saw the random body, uh, apparently he was so startled that he couldn't swim away and had to be hauled into a boat by his attendants. Yeah, I would imagine. I wonder if he thought he had died for a second. Like, oh right, God. like out of body experience. Like, am <laughs> yeah. I seeing my body? Because especially yeah. since the, they made a point of saying that they were muddy waters. So like, it doesn't matter what color clothes you were wearing or what color clothes the, the yeah. corpse is wearing. Like, y- y'all are going to look the same. Oh, God, that's awful. And that's like, awful. Yeah, like, that would be absolutely horrifying. <laughs> yeah, that is horrifying. Blech. So with this happening in between, after about three weeks of anxious waiting, um, yeah. his his rival had not managed to take flight. And Houdini's mechanic gave approval for the test. And on okay. March 16th, 1910, at five in the morning, Houdini took off in his plane, circled the field, and amid wildly cheering people, he made a perfect landing, thereby becoming the first person to fly a plane in Australia. That's just wild. How do we not know this about him? I have no idea. I think just because the, the magic stuff just, you know. It dominates. And I mean, to be fair, this is yeah. still pretty early in his career. This is 1910. And yeah. we know that he's still rolling for another few decades. So. Exactly. I don't know. Wow. But yeah, no, he would also do a bunch of flying situations with while he was in Sydney and uh, a few other things. But that's what he's known for in Australia, apparently. 
Uh, for those of you in Australia, please let us know if this is still true. Yeah, yeah, if you've heard this, absolutely. Now, to get back to the magic at hand, um, apparently in 1916, a couple years after this, Mm -hmm. he was here in Texas. What? He performed in Fort Worth. Oh, that's so cool. Right? How trippy is that? That is. Now, in 1916, Fort Worth was a town of roughly 150,000 people, or 150, 105,000 people. Okay. Um, and this was his first appearance in Texas. Oh, okay. And he was booked by the International Vaudeville Circuit into the Majestic Theater on Commerce Street for a week, along with comedy and musical acts. But na- naturally, Houdini was the big draw. Of course. And his big uh, climax for this show was what he called the Chinese water torture cell. Oh. Um, now, this is something that internationally was known as the water torture cell, but for some reason in the U.S. it was specifically the Chinese water torture cell. Mm. I mean, you, we can extrapolate from there why. But, once again, because he believes that, you know, there's always trickery involved, Right. And obviously he knows his own tricks, but this is another one of those situations where he offers a prize of $1,000 to anyone who could detect any trickery in his, quote, miraculous escape from the sealed water tank. Oh, okay. And of course, while he was in town, he also challenged all of the you know police to bring handcuffs that he could escape from. Yes. And I thought that was very entertaining. I love that. A little twist was fun where the police chief and a detective put Houdini in a straitjacket and handcuffs and then hoisted him upside down 50 feet over the pavement. Oh, that sounds very scary. Uh Uh-huh. And in less than five minutes, he was free and being lowered to the ground. Wow. Okay. Very impressive. That was, you know, he hits the ground and bows and invites the crowd to come see him perform at the Majestic. So, like, (laughs) he also uh, issued a challenge to the packing department of the Washer Brothers, store okay to seal him up in one of their packing boxes so that he so well that he couldn't escape in less than five minutes okay that seems very dangerous yeah but he got out in five minutes wow um and then off to dallas where he did the same thing to the dallas police department and also (laughs) got out of all of the handcuffs wow he was actually such a hit in fort worth that he was brought back again in 1924 but now here's my confusion okay this is a confusion for a lot of people given that houdini was a Jewish man in America in 1924. Right. Why Why? Why was he brought to Fort Worth by the Ku Klux Klan? Ugh. Yeah. Like, that, did they not know? Did he not know? Like, how did this happen? Oh, my God. My guess is they didn't know. But also, why why are you accepting an invitation? Because my first thought would be, like, is this a trap? Like, why should I go anywhere where they're going to be? Like, Right? And, like, he was playing in their clan hall. Like, it's not like they booked him at a different theater and there was a mistake about who was paying him. He, right. It was very much their show. I have no idea. that It makes no sense on both parts. Exactly. Like, I'm confused across the entire situation. Yeah, no kidding. Wow. After his first trip to Fort Worth, so that happened in 1924, back to the Uh chronologically. (laughs) um, 
1918 and 1919, he's back stateside, obviously, because you know he's mm-hmm. been traveling the U.S. And it's time to hit Hollywood with with his uncanny ability to know what's going to be big and popular. He's like Hollywood and moving pictures sounds like they're going to be popular. So he stars in a series of silent films. Uh, Some of them were available online, and I love the drama. Oh, my God. They're fantastic. I love (laughs) that age of Hollywood. I I am so sharing links on our pages. Y'all have to see these. Oh, please do. Please do. You've got to. And one of them is literally the first, I think, automaton shown in Hollywood is in one of his movies. Oh, interesting. And he has a fight with said automaton. Wow. He's trying to rescue a damsel in distress. Oh my gosh. Love it. And then in another pl- a movie, I should I should really have a list of these in front of me. I'm sorry. Um, one of the other movies that's really famous, there was an actual plane crash during the filming. But Wait, what? There, and I think everyone survived, but because um, like, again, we're lower to the ground. These are smaller right. planes, slower speeds. Uh, right. But he was not in the shot. This is one of the few instances of a stuntman. Oh. And so he was not harmed at all in the accident. But the airline crash in the movie is a real one. Holy moly. Yeah. Crazy. So after he leaves Hollywood, we basically begin to have our crossover with Jess's episode last week. <laughs> okay. I'm so excited to hear <laughs> all about this. Because I, I mean, I know what happened, spoiler, but I purposely didn't go into it much. Like, because I knew you were going to talk about it. So... I'm excited. Absolutely. And I mean, to be fair, like he and Doyle have known each other for years before this. Like this was not a sudden friendship. This wasn't a new friendship. Right. But the 1920s is where we know it all kind of heats up because Houdini's mother has passed. Mm -hmm. And in 1924, at the behest of Doyle, Scientific American offered a $2,500 prize to any medium who could produce physical manifestations of spirit communications under their test conditions. Yeah. And so this kind of became a big thing for frauds to come up. Right. Everybody wanted to be able to prove it. And uh, the general consensus, I think, for a while was that basically the only reason or no, the re- the main reason they kept finding frauds whenever they came into the tests was it was only the mediums that were after it for the money that were showing up to be tested. Yeah, and that was a real concern of Arthur Conan Doyle was exactly that. He suggested y'all need to go out, like, I will give you mediums or you need to go out and seek these real mediums that have a good reputation because he said the only people that are going to come are going to be fraudulent. You won't get any. And that kind of seemed to be the case. Yeah, they kept getting fraud after fraud after fraud. And I mean, we're going to cover her later, but even Marjorie Crandon came through and was for problematic reasons found to be false. Um. <laughs> yeah. Though I still Caitlin. stand by. Huh? I was just going to say, Caitlin still should have read into this before she covered ectoplasm in the other episode. <laughs> oh, Lord. Oh, the uh, ectoplasm. Um, so bad. <laughs> though I still stand by, and this isn't about just her or anything, but I still mm-hmm. stand by. I don't, I think even if they had real mediums come in, I don't think they were ever going to find a real medium yeah no they were pretty focused on making sure that everyone was seen as a fraud yeah yeah i think so too Uh, especially i think with the standards they it couldn't just be like one one scientist in the group 
thought that the proof was real and everyone else disagreed. It was one of those where, like, everybody had to agree. It had yeah. to be, like, a unanimous decision that they were, in fact, a real, providing real proof. Yes. Because you had a few that they were split. Like, some yeah. were like, no, this is a real one. And others, and I think Houdini was one of, one of the ones that would have never found one. Yeah. I mean. To be real. It was kind of a problem with Houdini because, I mean, we've already pointed out that he very much from the jump was like, if I'm a fraud, everyone's a fraud. He was hardcore projecting his trickery and assuming other people were capable of it. And even when he couldn't find evidence of trickery, and that's where I realized just how much he put into like offering these bets where I'll give you a thousand dollars if you can figure out my trick. Yeah. No one could ever figure him out, so he assumed yeah. that they were just so good that they couldn't be figured out either, but that didn't mean it wasn't trickery. Yeah. So, like, he literally assumes that everyone thinks like he does. Like, yep. he... It's a psychological state. Like, it's, he's, he's very much incapable of, like, thing, seeing things from somebody else's point of view in a lot of situations. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and then, of course, we have the very famous falling out in 1922, mm-hmm. um, where Doyle's wife is the one who offers to have the seance and serve as the medium to try to get his mother to come through. And yeah. and it, it, go, it goes badly. So um, badly. Like, at first, Houdini's, like, super happy about it. Like, he believed it, and it was real, and he was very happy to finally make contact with his mother because... If, if, if y'all want to look into it yourselves, he was very much attached to her in a relatively unhealthy way. Nothing inappropriate, just like serious degrees of attachment issues. Yeah. And it it was a problem. So like, I'm not surprised that he was desperate to make contact with her. But, you know, in this situation, he was very, very happy. And then apparently he sat with it for a few weeks and changed his mind. Yeah. And that's what really bothers me. And I kind of feel bad for Doyle is that. You know, like, if you have an issue with it, I I don't know, because Doyle thought this went great. It was awesome. This is wonderful. And then it's not only did Houdini come out and be like, I'm not sure about it. He kind of ripped the whole thing to shreds. Yeah. And it it was bad. And I mean, I can kind of see being excited in the moment and then sitting with it. And then the details that bothered him, I can see why they'd bother him, because the reason he didn't like it was at the top of the page was a cross, which mm-hmm. agreed weird for a Jewish woman to have put on her letter before talking to her son. But as Doyle explained, it was it was done before the seance as a protection against bad spirits coming through. Like that was something his wife did a lot. Okay, that I can that makes okay. Yeah, and so it's one of those where like I can kind of see both sides of that one where I'm like, ooh, I mean. There, there are other protective symbols when you know you are summoning a Jewish woman, just right. like respectively, um, or respectfully. But then the other part of it, and this, we've had conversations about this too. Yes. Um, it, his mother never really learned good, a, a good way of communicating in English. She was right. predominantly speaking in German all the time. And so as he sat with the message from his mother, he wondered why it was written in English. Yeah, and we have talked about this, which this one doesn't bother me as much because in my work, I've um, had loved ones in spirit that never spoke English that have come through. And I don't, I can't explain it, but I I can know that they didn't speak English, but I also can share what they're telling and what their message is. It's, 
it's something that gets worked out on the other side. <laughs> like I would be lying if I could tell you exactly what it is. But I've, I've had three or four come through that, yeah, never spoke English. And um, sometimes I, I can, because I can hear the other language at first. And sometimes I can pick it out and be like, okay, this would have been Spanish or this would have been this. Um, but then I can still get what they're saying across. I, it's like a translation. It, it, it translates in a way that's hard to explain. I know that probably sounds bizarre, but. No, I mean, the best way I've ever found to explain it is. It's not technically telepathy, but telepathy and the telephone do not work the same way. Right. Uh-huh. It is not somebody sitting there and talking to you in their language. It's a different right. form of communication entirely. Exactly. Okay. That Yes, exactly. Yeah. So um, that part yeah. of it that she, if, if uh, Doyle's wife didn't speak German, then the messages are going to come through where she can understand them. Yeah, but maybe she I mean, could have at least said she's not she wasn't English wasn't her first language. <laughs> like maybe she could have at least put that out there. Something. I don't know. Yeah. Like it could have been handled better. But I yeah. mean, given the flash yeah. temper that we've already seen Houdini has. Yeah. I mean, this this is not at all surprising because he just continued his quest to take down all spiritualists everywhere. And yeah. At one point, he's even performing in Congress, and I do call it a performance. Um, there was a podcast episode I listened to, and it was Transatlantic History. That's what it was. Yay! Um, so it was uh, Transatlantic History Ramblings. And it's actually a really interesting podcast. It's got a U.S. or Canadian. Now that I'm blanking. Pretty sure he's, he lives on the U.S. side uh, of Niagara. Mm-hmm. And then his co-host is in Wales. Oh, nice. So it's literally transatlantic. I love it. Yeah. And they go into amazing detail with the guy who runs the Wild About Houdini website. Like, he is still a main source for a lot of people. Uh-huh. And they go into such detail. It is beautiful. But that's where I'm like, I feel very comfortable calling his congressional performance a performance. Because his case that he brought before Congress was to pass an amendment to a bill that was already in existence that would more stringently specify what kinds of fortune telling was legal when they were applying for a license to practice fortune telling in Washington, D.C. Like, he didn't have a thing. I mean, he had a thing against fortune tellers as well. Right. But the situation here is that spiritualism is a religion. So Congress can't go against spiritualists. Right. But a seance is seen as more of an event. And on the daily, I guess, they were looking for other ways to make money because, you know, we still have to feed ourselves. Right. And so there were spiritualists in the D.C. area that were looking to get fortune telling licenses. Oh, okay. And so he was like, we need to restrict what can qualify. Lord, he wears me out. Like, I I get it. We don't want the frauds. But at the same time, you're considering everybody a fraud. So he also makes a case for all things associated with spiritualism and seances that they could lead to insanity. Oh, my God. He cited a Dr. Williams of the Cleveland State Hospital. Uh, who said that the Ouija board craze was a direct cause of sending folks to the madhouse. What? 
And apparently, while giving a show at the Lakeview Insane Asylum, he had heard about seven people who had been admitted in one month because of the Ouija board. Oh, Lord. <laughs> These are also the people that called women hysterical and that they should be sent away. And Yeah. It, oh. it, it, yeah. Um, Good Lord. So, plot twist, this didn't pass in Congress. Um, <laughs> but what's funny is that he... He was told that if he changed the wording on a bunch of things and made it less restrictive, they mm-hmm. might stand a chance at getting it to pass. Okay. Um, and so he didn't do that. He <laughs> wanted to make his solid case for it. But the reason we call it a performance, he was literally in Congress making his case and then explaining spirit uh, slate writing. Okay. Speaking of slate writing, I'll give you an example here and whips out slates to do a quick performance on how that works. So you have a mix of Congress people where you have some of them absolutely fascinated by what he's doing. Right. Some of them wondering why they're wasting their time on this, like absolute Yahoo, who's trying to convince them of something they think is ridiculous. And then the rest of them are just like, we get a free Houdini show. What's up with this? This is awesome. I I was about to say, yeah. Like we don't have to pay for pay or go to the theater. We just get it. Yeah. yeah, exactly. Like we're being paid to sit here because, by the way, they're Congress people who were being <laughs> they were at, they were on the floor doing their job and watching a show by Houdini. I'm sure it was way more entertaining than what they would normally be doing. You have to imagine so because he yeah. was a showman. At the very yeah, least. Exactly. But because he refused to change any of the wording, uh, it didn't pass. And that was one of the really interesting things that were posited by the podcast hosts was that their thinking was that he didn't actually anticipate it passing anyway. Mm. But if he made a big enough deal about it, then he'd be able to, again, get the word out and get the publicity for making his case that spiritualism was a fraud. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it's it's a logical move, and we can't argue with his results, because he was very good at showmanship and marketing. True. But, Absolutely. Yeah. So, because it is October, I feel mm-hmm. like we have to talk about how Houdini died. Yes. Oh, my gosh, because this is fascinating to me. And it's even more fascinating than I thought it was. <gasps> Ooh. Apparently, he kind of predicted his own death. Wait, what? Yeah. Um, <gasps> the way people wrote about it, uh, like there was a writer that knew him, uh, Fulton Ausler. He would mm-hmm. call me on the telephone at seven o'clock in the morning and would be in a quarrelsome mood because, I mean, he, he's a cranky boy. We're pretty <sighs> clear about that one. I say, yes. And he would talk for an hour telling me how important he was and what a great career he was making. His voice was hysterical. And in all these cases, Houdini portrayed to me a clear sense of impending doom. Oh. I believe that Houdini sensed the coming of his death, but did not know that it meant death. He didn't know what it meant, but he hated it, and his soul screamed out in indignation. Oh, wow. He also made a similar impression on uh, another magician named Dunninger, who reported that in the early hours of one morning, he had been awakened by Houdini again on the telephone. Mm-hmm. who insisted that he come over at once to see a pair of live hands that he had obtained. Uh, wait, wh- oh. They're a pair of human hands, Houdini shouted, and they're alive, Joe. They're alive. Okay, I think we're losing it a little bit. We are. Um, Dunninger ran over there, 
And on the library table was a plaster cast of Houdini's hands. There they are, Joe, he exclaimed. Don't they look as though they're alive? Just think of it. My hands. My poor hands immortalized and preserved forever. Isn't it wonderful? Okay, okay, we're, we're slipping a little. Uh-huh. We're getting a little kooky. Little kooky. Around the same time, uh, when Dunninger was helping him move some belongings from his house, Houdini uh, got back on the presentiment of his own death. Uh, basically, they got a couple blocks away from the house, and mm-hmm. Houdini suddenly ordered Denninger to turn back to the house. Denninger thought they'd forgotten something. Uh-huh. Um, it was raining, and when Houdini got out of the car, he just kind of stood on the sidewalk looking up at the house. And when he got back into the car, he was crying. And when they took off, he said, I've seen my house for the last time, Joe. I'll never see my house again. Whoa. And a little later, he began to speak of the bronze coffin that he had made for his submersion, submer, his submersion stunt. And he mm-hmm. said to Dunninger, Joe, I made it to be buried in. Holy moly. On the day he left New York for what would be his final tour, uh, he called Ausler again on the phone and declared that he was doomed. I am marked for death all over the land. Doyle later told him that loud warnings of danger arose. And in my own home circle, I had a message a year or so ago. Houdini is doomed, doomed, doomed. Wow. Now, to do a quick twist before we actually get to his death, uh, at the beginning of October, it was October 7th, he was in Providence, Rhode Island, and he mm-hmm. real- he woke up and realized that Bess was sick. Uh-oh. Um, she was sick and feverish, presumably from so-called tomain poisoning. Oh, I don't, I've never heard of that. I, I don't, I don't either. I remembered, I think I looked it up and I was surprised at what it was, so I'm going to look it up again real quick. Oh, it's food poisoning. Oh, Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was presu- it was presumed that she had food poisoning. And hospitalization was not advised. But uh, Houdini was absolutely terrified for her safety. And yeah. despite having good nurses available nearby, um, he stayed up with her all through the night, which is kind of sweet. Oh, that is. Um, on Saturday, she was still running a fever, but was well enough to travel. And following the evening performance... And in the company of a nurse, she took a train for Albany, where Houdini was beginning was scheduled to begin a run on Monday. Mm-hmm. After seeing them off at the Providence Station, Houdini boarded a train for New York, dozing fitfully on the long and uncomfortable journey. Mm-hmm. And when he got there, he did not slow down. He like went all over the place, taking care of random things until he got to the late afternoon when he randomly showed up at the apartment of his attorney. Okay, uh, there was there was an appointment, but. So, like, he basically ran random errands all day until late afternoon when he had an appointment to meet his attorney. And when he found out that the attorney wasn't back yet, he laid down for, like, 20 minutes to snatch a quick nap. Uh-huh. Um, and this would turn out to be his first... This is basically his first sleep in three days. Like, he's barely oh, slept in three days and he's still going full tilt. Yeah, that's not good for you. No, it's not. And apparently during his conference with his attorney, Houdini seemed less alert than usual. Consider what his job is and think about whether this might be a problem. Yeah, no kidding. And after, like, he finished meeting with his attorney, he took another train for Albany and, like, arrived there 7 a.m. on Monday. So he hadn't slept that night. Oh, my goodness. Um, He did. He was very relieved to find out the best was feeling better. And he managed to rest for an hour before hurrying out again to see that everything was ready for the night's opening. Like, dude, sleep. Yeah, 
Seriously. And on October 11th, uh, I like the way the book phrases it, that the peal of doom sounded again as preparations were being made for the water torture cell. Oh my god. Good lord. <laughs> Houdini seemed to be extremely fatigued as mahogany stocks were applied to his ankles. Mm-hmm. And as one of his assistants pulled on the hoist to lift him up in the air... And then, because you know, like they pull him up and then lower him down. Right, yeah. The apparatus slipped and gave <gasps> a sudden jerk. And Houdini gasped as he felt something snap in his left ankle. Oh, my Lord. Oh, my goodness. Uh, he, he was quickly lowered to the stage and yeah. uh, <laughs> yelled out to the audience if there's a doctor in the house. There was a doctor and they examined the ankle and said it was broken and you should probably go to the hospital for an x-ray. Like, cancel the show from here out. Yeah. Like, go. Um, what do you think Houdini said, given that this oh. meant canceling the second half of the show? Uh, I would feel like he would say no and keep going, because that's who we are. Yeah, no. He he declined and went through the rest of the show in severe pain, unable to bear any weight on that foot. Oh my, oh my gosh. Uh, later that night, he did get an x-ray and it was broken. Okay. Now, word of his injury, like, spread, obviously, because, like, gossip is a thing. Mm-hmm. And despite the forebodings and despite the newspaper report that the fracture might keep him off stage for a time because he's been injured. Yes. Houdini refused to submit to this mishap and aided by bandages, splints, and a brace, he managed to continue his two more scheduled days in Albany, followed by three more in Schenectady. Oh, he must have had some good painkillers. I'm wondering if he was on, like opium or laudanum or yeah, something you'd have to right mm-hmm. next stop was montreal uh he was due to open an engagement on monday and then continue through saturday obviously his ankle continued to be a problem and in between all of these performances he gave a lecture at mcgill university on the evils of spiritualism <sighs> had to throw that in can't miss that naturally although to be fair out of all of his performances he could at least like in theory, be wheeled up on stage and, like, sit. Well, true. He's slightly less active than the rest of his performances. But, like, also, (laughs) take a nap, dude. Yeah. Yeah, take a moment. While he was relaxing on Friday morning, he was, like, actually going over his mail in the dressing room. Not not resting, resting, but, like, you know, relaxing. Uh, Several students who had heard his lecture came in. One of them, a man by the name of J. Warden, or J. Gordon Whitehead, reputed to be a college boxing star, tried to engage Houdini in a discussion about miracles mentioned in the Bible. Uh-huh. But aside from wondering what people had of, of those ancient times might have thought about his own miraculous stunts, Houdini didn't really have any interest in the subject. Yeah. So next, Whitehead asked if it was true that despite being 52 years old, Houdini's physical condition was so good that he could withstand blows to his body without injury. <sighs> When he was invited to put it to the test and believed that he had permission to do so, Whitehead let loose and punched Houdini severally, several times in the abdomen. Oh Apparently before Houdini had time to prepare himself. So that one, it, it actually could have been a misunderstanding. Like, fine, let's right. do it. And then not realizing you had to wait for him to stand up. Right. Yeah. And so, like, Houdini gasped and clutched his abdomen, signaling the young man to stop, then braced himself and invited Whitehead to hit him again. And this time Houdini was ready and the blow didn't hurt. (sighs) He's just asking for it at this point. Like, you have a death wish. Dude, seriously. Uh, Something definitely had pain because by the end of the matinee, he began to feel pain in his abdomen and it was tender to the touch. Not shocking. Once again, he had no sleep that night, but this time it was due to his own discomfort. Chills and sweats and spells of fatigue. 
Characteristically, mm. he insisted on going through with the final performance on Monday. Mm. But at the end of it, he had to be helped into changing his clothes. And he took a train to Detroit where a doctor finally got him, like, into the hospital. Wow. Um, he now had a fever of 104 degrees. <gasps> and he performed one last time. Oh, my Lord. Oh, just stop. Uh, by Monday morning, there was no question. And uh, he, he caved and capitulated to, to surgery. Uh, finally. Right. Uh, during the operation... It was basically found that he had ruptured, a ruptured gangrenous appendix is the way they described it. Oh, so that's his, not good. Yeah. It, it, they, they were removed, obviously. But he had been afflicted by a fulminating streptococcal perionitis. And this is before penicillin, so there was no medicines that would really help with this. Mm. Um, and despite a display of what his physician found to be an extraordinary will to live... Eventually, he realized the end was near. On Halloween morning, Sunday, October 31st, he whispered to his brother, Theodore, I am tired of fighting. I guess this thing is going to get me. And at 1.26 in the afternoon, he died. Wow. He was laid to rest in the same bronze coffin he had prop purchased as a prop. <sighs> Crazy. And in accordance with his own instructions, he was interred in the family plot in Pella Cemetery. My body is to be embalmed and buried. In the same manner in which my beloved mother was buried upon her death, and my grave is to be constructed in the same manner as my beloved mother's last resting place was constructed. I also direct that I shall be buried in the grave immediately alongside that of my dear departed mother. Yeah. Yeah, his, mo wow. his mother fixation was a strong one. Um, I did really like the theory that I think was in the audiobook. I can't remember. Uh, uh -huh. It was either the audiobook or the podcast, because I definitely remembered hearing the words of someone saying this. But... Like, obviously, there are no accounts of a blow to the stomach causing your appendix to rupture on mm -hmm. their own. But the theory is that he already had an inflamed appendix and the blow caused them to burst potentially. Mm -hmm. But because of the blow to the stomach, he was extra resistant to admitting that there was something wrong with his abdomen because he didn't want to be seen as weak. And yes. without that punch to the stomach, he might have been convinced to go to the hospital sooner. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I thought that was a valid mm -hmm. thing to put forward. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, um, and then if you want some interesting just statistics of Houdini himself, <laughs> um, I got a kick out of the way they phrased this. Uh, okay. This is in the audiobook. His height, uh, because there like there have been arguments about his height over the years, right? And some people are like, well, maybe he got taller because he spent so much time hanging upside down. <laughs> in 1926, we have a physical that gives us his exact height. Oh, he was five foot five inches. Or five foot five point two seven six if you prefer precision, or one point six five point eight centimeters if you prefer metric precision. Wow, that's my height. Like he wasn't yeah. that tall. He was he was relatively short. Yeah, especially for a guy. Exactly. Oh wow. But yeah, he kept. I mean, he was still an incredibly impressive person with what he managed to get his body to do. But like, oh, absolutely. He was definitely unstable. Yeah. Like, yeah. I was just thinking, like, that's interesting. He he kind of predicted his death, but it's like, did you think you were going to die? So then you just went out and did a lot of reckless stuff? And so, you know, or did he have a prediction and it just came true? Like, Or did it have the prediction and he refused to allow it to be true, so he pushed himself further than he would have normally? Yeah, that's another good point, too. I don't know. But it just seems like he just repeatedly was asking for, like, 
Like, how? I don't know. That's crazy. I just think it's fascinating. He died on Halloween. And didn't they have a seance like every, I don't remember how many years, but every year. 10 years. Yeah. his uh, His wife had a seance every year for 10 years. And apparently the last one, um, Mm -hmm. he came through. And that's why we know what their special code was is because a medium was able to bring Houdini through and the... I know the message begins with Rosabelle, sweet Rosabelle, because it had to do with the song that was playing when they met on the boardwalk. Oh, okay. But as impressive as I was, I was super excited to learn that we knew what the code was. But apparently Bess was in a relationship with the medium that was bringing Houdini through at the time. And so there are questions about whether she was just trying to keep his name in the papers and worked with the medium to to fake the seance. That's... Yes, and the other thing I was thinking, if she's in a relationship with the medium, does she really care about having the seance anymore? So is it kind of like, hey, he came through, we found him, the end. (laughs) Ta-da, we're finished. (laughs) Yeah. That's a good question. I didn't think about that part, but yeah. Yeah, like, uh, can we be done with this now? (laughs) Oh, and and you, um, what was it? Was it the Knickerbocker Hotel? Because I always want to say the Roosevelt, and it wasn't, but I think it was the Knickerbocker it was one in Hollywood. The, yeah, I think it was like on the roof is like when they had the last one. I think I just remember that because I learned that a long time ago because that one was like aired, I think, like on the radio. Like they did that one like live. And so it was this huge production and that always just fascinated. That just stuck with me. Yeah, apparently there were rumors that the article about it having worked were printed the day before. Really? That tells, I don't know. If that rumor's true, then obviously, but that is one of the rumors that came up while I was, uh, yeah, like, and the confusing part is just, like, for the family and friends of the dude who spent, what, half his career intentionally debunking spiritualism? Yes. And they maintain a yearly seance for a decade? Yeah, it, it is interesting, which I know the whole thing was, like, if it's real, I'll come back and use this word. Like, I, I get that. But again, it feels a little hypocritical. The one that said, this is fake all along. I'm going to prove it's real. <laughs> like, I'm going to try to prove it's real. I just, it's like it doesn't add up. A lot of this stuff doesn't add up. Yep. And I mean, in 1943, apparently when she was getting near her, uh, near to her death, uh, Beth recalled her decade long vigil. She wasn't sorry that she stopped saying 10 years is long enough to wait for any man. <laughs> Okay, I kind of So, like, she was done. Yeah. Yeah, that's why I kind of wonder if she didn't give the guy, like, here, here it is. <laughs> exactly. Like, I'm, I'm, I'm finished. Can we be finished? We're finished. Fabulous. Bye. Yes. yes exactly. Yeah. But, yeah. No, he, he is fascinating and remarkably unstable. And there are lots of different people having lots of different arguments about his history. It's kind of cool. It is. I love it. I love it. Well, thank you for sharing. No, I learned so much more about him that I did not know. Yeah, I had no idea. Honestly, it's still the flights in Australia that get to me. Yeah. I'm like, you weren't known for escaping. You weren't known for ma- You were known for flying. Yeah. And then you were teaching people right after you learned. Like, you aren't certified to do this. What are you doing? Yeah. So, again, if we have listeners in Australia, let us know, like, is that just common knowledge down there that none of us knew? Right. Yes. Like, is this something that you hear Houdini and he is synonymous with flying and escapism? 
or just flying or has the flying thing fallen by the wayside and you know him now for the crazy escape artist that he was yeah i'd be really curious to know that i'm super curious oh well thanks kate for telling us all about houdini especially getting closer to halloween so i guess if anybody wants to try their own seance and see if he'll come through (laughs) yes there are apparently two seances that are still held to this day that are vying for being the inheritors of the original seance Um, i think one of them is still done in the same location and the other one is done by like the medium who was trained by the medium who was the original medium oh wow I don't remember. Anyway, there are two of them that vie for the fact that they are the original seance still to this day. Or you can, you know, have your own seance. But kind of like I said in one of the early episodes on here, don't do it on Halloween because odds are he's busy. Everyone's trying to cockpack him on Halloween. (laughs) Everyone's trying to get, like, Marilyn Monroe, Elvis, and Houdini, like, and Lincoln, and Benjamin Franklin. Like, don't pick a famous person on a famous day. Like, find a random Tuesday. You might have better luck. (laughs) Exactly. I love it. I love it. Great Halloween tip. Yes. And thank you all so much for being here with us. If you enjoyed my random ramblings of Houdini, please do us the favor that we always ask of you and appease the podcast gods and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Pod or Spotify or wherever you listen. And while you're there, hit subscribe so that you know when we release new episodes. Absolutely. And we want to hear from you always. So let us know what you think about this episode. If there are any other spirited topics you want us to cover in future episodes, you can always find us on Instagram or Facebook at Calling All Spirits Pod, or you can email us at CallingAllSpiritsPod at gmail.com. And if you're feeling lucky or adventurous, you can always use the Houdini seance to try and contact us. But, I mean, you probably have better luck doing that than you would trying to get Houdini. But I still feel like the email might be the more direct route. Yeah, I'd go with email. (laughs) Yeah, email's probably the best. Oh, well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye.